Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Deirdre Bosa, CNBC's host of Tech Jack. Debo, welcome back to the pod. Hello, happy to be here again. We got so much to cover here. You'd think that we're like literally in almost the back half of the last month of the year, okay? And we're still talking about earnings. We had Oracle last night. We have Adobe tomorrow night. We had a huge mover in Broadcom over the last few days since it reported its earnings. And it just seems like there's rotations abound. We have a NASDAQ 100 that's up nearly 50% on the year, which is pretty remarkable, within 3% or so of the all-time high Mate in late 2021, D. It's funny, as we're speaking right now, I'm looking at an Oracle that is down 12% on the day after a disappointing report and guide. And there's obviously some issues going on, you know, relative to some of the peers in, in their cloud, but really period over period, they're seeing a deceleration. And this is the second quarter in a row. And, and obviously the story in the stock market this year is really the haves and the have-nots. Those are playing catch up and those who just have the goods and it's been off to the races or so. So I'm curious when you see a stock like Oracle, which about three months ago was trading at an all-time high, is now down significantly from those levels on two consecutive misses and guides lower. What is that saying to you a little bit about investor psychology heading into the end of the year, but possibly as they set up for the new year too? It tells me we can't go on holiday just yet. <laughs> and every earnings cycle, we get through the Magnificent Seven. NVIDIA is always last. You think, okay, don't make any huge conclusions until you get NVIDIA, at least this year. And then you get the tail end, which is the Oracle and the Adobe. And it tells you, and actually for good reason, you need to pay attention to these, right? Because they look at a longer cycle. They have more information. Usually they give you some clues about the current quarter that we are in. And that's caught investors off guard a few times this year. I also think about a service now, right? I think that they're a little later and they've had the ability to disrupt what we thought we knew about earnings. And when it comes to Oracle, they've really just become this big bigger cloud player, I think bigger than many people had expected them to be, nowhere near the hyperscalers, but in the conversation. And the fact that it's down, what did you say, 12% or more today? I was looking at that chart as also. I, I don't know that we got a perfect answer from the big three cloud players, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. It was maybe they had bottom, but I don't think we had a definitive answer. It was still an open question. And this brings that up again. Do we really know Amazon, which is the biggest player? We think that growth bottomed out at 12%, but I remember I asked the CFO specifically that, and he couldn't say that it definitely bottomed. And then Jassy came on and provided a bit more optimism. But this is something that we're going to be wondering, is this software recession over? I think I saw a chart on AR, so recurring revenue 
revenue that was recovering. But it'll be a theme going into next year. How much has it really recovered? How much is there to go? Safra Katz from Oracle mentioned that this is not a demand issue. It really is like a, a supply issue. They're looking to bring on 100 data centers, right, to meet that demand. And I just wonder, as you think about, we've spent the last year and a half going back and forth about this recession that's never come. Sooner or later, it's going to come and it's probably going to be led by enterprise kind of softness in the very beginning for demand for those things. So to your point about whether AWS bottomed or not, it brings me back to that last week in October, D, where Alphabet reported and there were concerns about demand or, or their growth. That stock sold off nine and a half percent or so. So it's been a tale of different cities, if you will, as it relates to like these hyperscalers and the competition and really some of the market share, how it's been moving around and, and the like over the last couple quarters or so. That's a good point. I had almost forgotten about Alphabet because it was so long ago. And I remember the ad side of the business looked really good, but it was cloud that didn't look that great. Microsoft looked pretty great. And Amazon was a question mark. So what do you take from that? I, I'm not sure. But now you have another piece of data to fit in, which is Oracle. Yeah. And, and I guess one point that I would just make, and we've been talking a lot about on our pods as we've gotten to tag ends for this earnings season a little bit, it's just universally, it seems the visibility is very poor right now. And so I think that also because China is so weak right now, I think there's like reverberations going on where a lot of companies or a lot of C-levels execs don't really want to put their necks out right now, but that's been good enough, right? In this rate environment right here with the push out of expectations for a recession as inflation has come in, as crude oil has come in, so other input costs have come in. There's lots of things that I think are keeping investors excited about, but I just, listen, again, I, I just think it makes a lot of sense as you think about what worked in 2023 and what might work in 2024, what's clearly the case, and investors are at least speaking with their wallets right now, there's a little bit of a broadening out. So there's this little bit dash for trash, and we'll talk about that. But I think the consensus is that the 2023 leaders are also going to be the 2024 leaders. We're seeing a little bit of digestion. And one great example of that would be NVIDIA. You just mentioned their earnings that came on November 21st, and the stock was very near an all-time high. It had a huge run into the print. And again, great quarter, great guidance, but wasn't meaningfully above what any whispers were. And since then, we've seen a rotation into some other net semi names. Yesterday on Monday, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, the SMH made a new all-time high, despite the fact that NVIDIA, its largest component at nearly 20% or so, was down more than 2% on the day. And, and I guess you could look at it and say, that's bullish. But again, what are going to be the drivers? Because if I look at all of these outlooks that are coming out by strategists and analysts, I think a lot of folks are still really excited about NVIDIA, and it remains many analysts' top picks for 2024. I think what you're getting at, too, is that valuation is starting to get a hard second look, right? And this has really been the year of the big tech comeback. We started talking about the Magnificent Seven, and no one's done better than NVIDIA, right? Just incredible throughout the year. And if that's tapering off a tiny bit, that's perhaps expected as investors look for some of the other picks and shovels in this generative AI shift. Something I was looking at that I thought was really interesting, you talked about big tech and how that might broaden out next year. And if you look at the balance sheet, something very interesting has been going on because while it's been all about the Magnificent Seven, they've taken up all the air in the room, some of the lesser than names have actually been getting their balance sheets in order. Part of that had to do with layoffs and cost cutting, the year of efficiency, reorganization, and just these like public commitments to be more disciplined around cost. You're starting to see that 
in their free cash flow margin expansion and EBIT earnings. And some of the names, I think B of A put this out there, they, they looked at where has this sort of inflection point been hit at which companies you see a Unity, you see a Wix, you see a Palantir and Upwork and a Pinterest. These names were just crushed last year, meddling around, rebounding somewhat, but not coming even close back to the levels where they had been in 2021. So maybe if you actually see this free cash flow as a percentage of revenue margins, if you see that continue to improve and interest rates go down so the market values growth a little more, they they could be well positioned. I think that's a great point. I think a lot of investors are positioning that way right now. If you look at just the move over the last few months and like a Pinterest, it's had a couple upgrades, which are I'm sure based on maybe Bank of America might have upgraded them a couple weeks ago. And that might have been part of their thesis in a way. And it's trading at a two-year high right now. And if you think about that, investors, they look at the charts from late 2021 and they say to themselves, this stock went from 90 down to 19 or so. And here we are at 36 bucks. We're up 100% off the lows-ish or something like that. They see a lot of room to the upside, especially if they see a recession that was priced in at one point and is not coming. And they see improvement in the metrics, improvement in the balance sheet and the like. And some of these cost structures just in good shape. And if you have a consumer that kind of hangs in there in a lower rate environment, not a bad thing, right? I get all of that. One of the things that makes me a little nervous, though, going back to semis for a second, D, is that when I look at like a, a, a Broadcom, this is a company that right now, it is up 20% in a week since it reported earnings late last week. And it's interesting, the day after their earnings, the stock was up like 2% or so. So all of these gains have come in the last couple of days. And it's also come, as I mentioned, that we've seen a rotation out of some of these other names. And I say to myself, this is not a small company. This is a half a trillion dollar market cap company. Now, they've obviously just completed this acquisition of VMware. So if you're looking at the estimates year on year, it looks like they're going to have really healthy revenue growth, right? And earnings growth that trades at 22 times this coming year, which is just a couple turns above the market multiple, if you will, and in line with some of the, let's say, the other growth areas that people are really focused on in the space. And you say to yourself, it looks reasonable. But then I say to myself, it just added $100 billion in market cap in a week or so. And as we go into year end, and we know some of the shenanigans get that get played with window dressing and folks' portfolios and the like, and how they think about risk in the new year a little bit, where you have a lot of time to make things back, even if things were to retrace a little bit. I'm just curious how you think about that. You sit here and you cover these stocks on CNBC all day long. You talk to a lot of investors, both public and private markets. I wonder if folks think that if we just have this mad dash into year end and we just mark the hell out of all this stuff, what does it look like on the other side of this when we get into January? Because to me, in my investing career, it's not usually a stepping stone for further gains. We usually have to have a step back a little bit before we can move higher. It's also interesting to think, where did the lessons of the pandemic go when big tech got it so wrong? They thought that the pandemic era gains would be sort of this straight line up when really when they came back down, it was just a return to normalization and the graph was in the exact same trajectory that it was before the pandemic. So now we're willing to believe that there's going to be something that takes it off again. And maybe that's generative AI. And that's why you're seeing the chip players get the benefits. But you bring up a good point in delayed gains, which I've been scratching my head about also when it came to Google's announcement of Gemini, which I covered carefully. I thought, why isn't the stock moving on this? This is, has the AI halo gone away? And then the next day, 
it was up some 6% for this massive company, trillion dollar plus company. You saw the same thing with AMD. And I wonder if it just all goes back to interest rates, Dan, you know better than I, is that once the market as a whole gets more confident that we're definitely not going to see any more hikes, but cuts are in the future. That's just an excuse to buy these tech names. Well, let, let's talk about Gemini for a second here, because it's interesting that we're bookending the year with, remember that day in early February, okay, this is after ChatGBT was already infecting at least Microsoft stock price, and people were looking at just the halo effect in and around that. And then obviously, they were immediately thinking that this is bad for Google, it's bad for their search and the like, and they rushed out their presentation for Bard and it went really poorly. And I remember you and I might have been potting that day. Like, why is Alphabet down 5%? That's a massive move for a one and a half trillion dollar market cap company or something like that. And then the report started coming out about how poorly that presentation went. And now let's flash forward to last week. Again, some of the initial reactions were to this Gemini. Okay. So again, this is a generative AI model that's going to be used throughout a lot of of alphabets, right? Like other products and, and the like here. And I guess it was like going really well, but the stock wasn't moving. The next day you walk in and it gapped up. This is really important for folks who don't like think about the day-to-day trading of stock. Sometimes you just see, well, you know, alphabet closed up 5%. 5% again on a $1.5 trillion market cap company is massive. For it to gap up, okay, for the opening print, okay, now obviously it's trading in the pre-market, but for the opening print to be up 4 or 5%, that's massive. It basically says everybody is rushing to buy this thing at the same same time, and it's causing that sort of move. And I do think it's interesting. If you look over the last four trading days, D, it has almost filled in the entire gap. You and I were talking before we turned the mics on here a little bit. Ben Thompson over at Stratechery, he did a, a, a nice report on this yesterday, basically talking about it was a really quizzical release, right? It wasn't real time. It wasn't live. It was using a lot of screenshots. They had a bunch of disclaimers. So it feels like when the tech folks really dug into it, they were like, wait a minute, this might not be as advertised. So I just think it's interesting that we're bookending this year with with basically what appears to me to be two fails by Alphabet on the generative AI front. Yes, except I would add that there was one big success in the middle of that, and that was its Google I.O. I was there in Mountain View, and I saw the presentation. They seemed to answer that question of what happens to search. Is generative AI going to kill their golden goose, or is it going to make it stronger? And in that instance, it looked like they were able to answer markets and say, we're thinking about this. It's going to look amazing. And by the way, they gave this presentation. None of that stuff was available or is available right now. It's called Search Labs, the way that's going to work in the future. Although you do get hints of it when you do a Google search. Now you do get a generative AI barred answer. In terms of that presentation, to me, it showed the insecurity once again. And that's been such a theme this year. They're falling over themselves to prove that they've got it, that they're leading in this race. And that's what Google did. I mean, who has a huge announcement between Thanksgiving and Christmas? You just don't see that very often. And why would they do it virtually instead of get up on stage and do it like everyone else has done that? So again, it felt almost like AWS a few weeks ago when they looked insecure because they kept talking about Microsoft. It looked like Google did that instead of just relying on its foundational technology. I mean, everyone in tech knows that Google has pioneered this stuff. They're struggling to convince Wall Street that they can capitalize on it, right? And that is important. And that maybe explains the urgency and some 
some of the insecurity we see in an announcement like that and the idea that they feel that they have to manipulate the presentation, say it does more than it actually does at the moment. I think that's part of it, though, as well, is that what ChatGPT and OpenAI showed us is they made a chatbot that we can touch and feel and interact with that sort of blew everyone's minds. That's what Google's trying to do ahead of the technology actually being available. Yeah, no, it, it, it is interesting. Listen, Alphabet has done just fine on the year. If you look at the, the stock performance, it's up 50%. It's up in line basically with what the NASDAQ 100 is. Microsoft's up 56%. Uh, Apple's up 49%. So if you just think of their mega cap peers, Amazon is up a bit more uh, or percent or so. And they actually, aside from what they were able to demonstrate during Google I.O., they haven't really had a, a lot of things that they could say, listen, we are neck and neck here as it relates to Microsoft and their partnership with OpenAI. So that is going to be a question to be answered next year. The one thing I'll say, it is reflective in the stock's valuation. It's trading about 20 times next year's expected earnings that are on a gap basis are going to grow 15%, or at least consensus is calling for that on 11% sales growth with gross margins declining a little bit from 62.5% to basically 61 or so. And you think about it, Microsoft is trading at almost 10 turns better. You know what I mean? So again, I just think that that's the battle that's going to play out in 2024. And interestingly enough, I mean, a pairs trade with short Microsoft, long Alphabet might be something interesting for those Google fans out there who think that there might be something in the cards maybe in Q1 for Alphabet. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. I would keep an eye on some of the regulatory stuff, which doesn't tend to move markets, but there was that headline that I felt went under the radar last week, and that is that the FTC is looking into the OpenAI Microsoft investment. When looking at how that could have given Microsoft this advantage to the disadvantage of a lot of other startups in this space. And then there was this really small change in the organizational chart of OpenAI. It went from Microsoft calling Microsoft a minority owner to a minority investment holder. And it just feels like they're doing these things around the edges to make sure that I don't know who, maybe it's the regulators know that these are separate entities. Listen, and the other point is like the lack of oversight that Microsoft has over this and the increasing fears of it. And if there remains a bit of like uncertainty about the management structure of this thing, it makes sense that the government might step in, given how concerned so many folks are about this technology in general. And on the regulatory front, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that. This was a headline that I know it's a story that you followed a lot. This is Epic Games with Apple, okay, but this is Google 
loses antitrust case brought by Epic Games. Now, some of the folks that I saw commenting on this would highlight the fact that when Apple appealed, they won on appeal. And so talk to me a little bit about this battle and what it means, because there's other implications beyond, let's just say, Google and Apple, which we know that there's a whole host of folks who think are very worried about monopolistic behavior and the like here, but there's implications just all the way down the chain in technology in general. So I have a love-hate relationship with big tech regulatory stories. I hate them because they never move the stock and it feels like investors just don't care. And if you look in the long term, it just hasn't affected if you believe that the stock market is a weighing machine and these concerns are going to be priced in. They just haven't really been priced in. But I love them because of all the stuff that gets aired (laughs) during these regulatory battles, which over time, and I've been covering this stuff for like seven, eight years now, over time, it starts to make an impact. I think that's what we're starting to see. It's not so much that Epic won this lawsuit against Google because it's going to be appealed. We don't even know what the consequences are going to be yet. There's so many more things to happen. But just what the case reveals, it reveals Google being worried about the Epic Games contagion, right? That if Fortnite finds ways to work around the App Store, the Google Play Store, 100% of the other top game developers are going to do the same thing. What we learned from Epic and Apple, even though Epic lost that case, we learned how worried Apple is about integrating something like messages, right? The blue versus the green bubble, which is another unrelated battle this week. But the Epic case helps that battle. And it's helping all of these little tech players gain little edges here and there or create little cracks here and there. And the fact that Google Epic was a case that was decided by a jury, that has interesting implications because Google versus DOJ on the real meaty stuff that matters, right? Search technology, the core of Google's business, that's going to be decided by a jury as well. And what this case and ruling showed us is that the jury can understand this really complicated stuff. They can understand it enough to make a decision. I think it was in about an hour right? It was very quick. That surprised almost everyone involved. You know, implications for the more meteor, arguably more meteor battles ahead next year. You said you've been following these for seven years. I started investing, trading in the late 90s, and Microsoft was throw the Mag 7 all together, and they were the target. They were the big kahuna back then, and the regulators were always coming after them, and they finally got them, and they really did thwart a lot of behavior, and you and I have talked about this before. Coming into the 2000s, they just missed the internet, and they missed mobile. They missed a lot of things, and it really does have the ability to preoccupy and really change your prerogatives a little bit, but it doesn't seem like any of these large players over the last 10 years have been particularly worried. And it's something that we've talked about on the desk of Fast Money and our podcast. We talk about it all the time. And it just seems it's becoming of lesser and less importance the longer we go. And and what makes me nervous And it's not too different than what we were just talking about with OpenAI. When you have these technologies that are super influential, I think a lot of folks going back to 2016 wish that we better regulated social media. And I think that getting in front of what this AI technology and the implications across so many different industries and and governments and the like, I think makes a lot of sense. But again, these folks that are controlling these companies, they have never had more wealth at their fingertips to defend against that sort of stuff. And it just gets harder and harder, I think. 
And more lobbyists in DC, by the way. What you've seen is the big tech companies putting some very high profile people into these positions, hiring people who will sit full time in Washington to talk to lawmakers and regulators. But at the same time, you're seeing the regulators themselves perhaps become more nimble, become tougher, right? We know that the Biden administration regulators like Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor They've been very active. And on the other side, the smaller tech side, I spoke to Luther Lowe today. He is Y Combinator's public policy head. They just created that position this year. You think about the power that Y Combinator has, and it's sort of at the earliest stages of a startup's life cycle. He can now coordinate among all of them. And that's part of what you saw with that messaging battle earlier this week as well, the blue versus the green bubble and how Apple shut down this company or shut down the technology that enabled the startup to deliver blue bubbles on behalf of Android users. That's a Y Combinator company. And you've got someone like Luther Lowe, who's been a vocal critic for so many years, first on the Yelp side, now fighting that battle. And he's in Washington full-time as well. I think next year could be interesting for regulation. No doubt. And an election year, right? So like those things, like they make snappy headlines too. I want to go to the private markets for a second here because a couple dueling headlines I thought was interesting. This is one from the information. Some AI startups find the money is no longer so easy. And they cite a bunch of examples of AI startups that go out and they're trying to pre-revenue and raise a bunch of money. And they're not finding the, the access to capital as easy as it was, let's say, a few months ago. And then here's one from TechCrunch. This is Minstrel. AI, a Paris-based open AI rival closed its 415 million funding round. I find that really interesting. And then this one last week from the New York Times, from unicorns to zombies, tech startups run out of time and money. They cite a lot of data there about a bunch of companies that have just shut down or gone bankrupt into the tunes of tens of billions of dollars that are raised. But this last comment I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, Approximately 3,200 private venture-backed U.S. companies have gone out of business this year. Those companies had raised 27.2 billion dollars in venture funding. Just think about that. Gone poof. And I talked to a lot of VCs out there. A lot of firms that want to liquidate stuff that's not working, figure out how to get some money back and kind of reset the scales a little bit and really refocus on some of the things that they think is the next mega trend. And we know what that is. That's AI. So talk to me a little bit about the dynamics. You're out there in SF. There's a lot of this going on out there and the push and pull between what didn't work in the past cycle, what people think is going to work in the next cycle. And there's a lot of stuff in between. And because of that, all of these headlines are true. (laughs) There are now zombie startups running out of time and money. Actually, I don't know if we're going to see it all at once, but we've been talking, it feels all year, about this wave of startup bankruptcies that we're going to see, and it still hasn't happened. Companies raised so much money in 2021, and then they got lean that maybe it's bought them a little bit more time. But I think you're going to continue to see that going into next year. The AI space is still white hot, right? Like Mistral AI, $415 million funding round from the likes of Andreessen Horowitz, sales Salesforce. If you are a buzzy, hot, generative AI company, you are not going to have problems raising money. That still remains true. But are investors starting to get more discerning? Yes. We're talking a lot more about wrappers, right? If you don't have your own technology and you're just placing something on top of an open AI or an anthropic or whatever it is, you're going to maybe have a harder time raising because you're going to be competing with these companies themselves and big tech. So it's all true. I feel like for months and months, we've been talking about a bubble in AI. I'm sure we're going to see that deflate over the coming year. But big tech, Microsoft, Amazon, Google have been so active 
active in this market. And not just them, but Salesforce and some of the others that are big tech, not mega caps. I wonder if that changes next year, if they're going to step back. But they have these huge balance sheets that, again, we've talked about this in the past, $13 billion from Microsoft into OpenAI is like an option. It's nothing. It's pocket change for them. Yeah, no doubt. And what I think is the most interesting thing, just putting a bow on this whole conversation, is that we entered 2023 where there was tremendous pessimism about the private markets, about valuations, about just due diligence. Just remember, we were coming out of that FTX, SBF whole situation in October and November. ChatGPT had just been introduced, at least the ChatGPT4, and there was some excitement about it, but it really hadn't made its way into the stock market until early in the new year. And here we are. So expectations were really low, very pessimistic. And on the flip side of that, so now here we are at the end of this year, we have an S&P that's up 20% and we have an NDX and NASDAQ 100 up 50%. We know the top 10 names by market cap make up 30% of the S&P and 50% of the NDX. So again, there's a lot of folks who are really excited about the potential for this technology to work its way into other parts of the stock market. But again, I'd probably be looking the other way and I'll just say this, that's the way it goes, but don't forget it goes the other way too. So that's maybe the quote as we head into 2024. Debo, I really appreciate this conversation, your insights as always. You can check Debo out on Tech Check, on CNBC. Really appreciate you being here with me. Thank you, Dan, as always. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.